New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the boundaries of Jungian thought. My guest is James P. Driscoll, who was my housemate when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin in 1969. He is the author of The Unfolding God of Jung and Milton, Shakespeare and Jung, The God in Time, Shakespeare's Identities, Psychological and Mythic Perspectives, and most recently, Jung's Cartography of the Psyche, a guide to terms, concepts, and insights. Jim is, I think it's fair to say, one of the leading interpreters of Renaissance literature from a Jungian perspective. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Jeffrey, and uh, thank you for inviting me onto this session. We're going to talk about the boundaries of Jungian thought. Your uh, book, your new book, The Cartography, is especially useful for that purpose. It shows sort of uh, the, the edges where Jung stopped uh, really his exploration and other scholars and other fields, including yourself, have, have taken off where Jung uh, left off. Uh, I think that's putting it very well, Jeff Je Jeffrey, and I think you've described a stage that, that we, we've reached in, in Jungian thought and studies, that, that uh, during the maybe 20, 30 years after uh, Jung's death, uh, studies were dominated by people like Marie-Louise von Franz, who, uh, who would focus on making it clear what you actually thought. And uh, that, that process is, is still going on, but uh, uh, they, they knew Jung, they were uh, his students, uh, the, the, the people who dominated at that time, and uh, th their interest was making sure that uh, the world understood what Jung had to say. Now, I think that generation has passed, and we've moved on to a time when uh, more and more people outside of professional unionism, uh, people who are not uh, clinicians administering to patients, but in many other, other fields, all the way from physics to philosophy to, to literature to theology and politics, they're, they're looking at the implications of Jung's vast array of ideas, and I would emphasize that, that just the, the number of uh, provocative ideas that, that uh, lead down paths to, to new ways of, of seeing things and, and new things to be seen is enormous in, in, in Jung. It's one of the really impressive things about Jung is how much uh, he covered and how he was kind of a, a, a kind of a universal genius. I, I, I don't I haven't heard that he's been compared to Leonardo before, 
but something of the same thing. Somebody who was capable of uh, uh, just understanding vast areas of, of human in, endeavor. And while he did have a center on psychology and psychiatry and healing people, that led him into uh, just an, an enormous palace, Versailles-sized palace of thought where uh, all sorts of other things could be uh, explored. It, uh, it led him to uh, in basically focus on as much as he, he could uh, the entirety of, 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 of humanity. I suppose as a starting point, we could talk about Jung's first great mentor, Sigmund Freud, who was clearly one of the most influential thinkers of the uh, 20th century himself. And uh, I recently interviewed Richard uh, Reichbart, a Freudian, and he sort of thinks of Jung as still a, as a member of the psychoanalytic family. So I, I see Freud maybe as analogous to Columbus. Columbus for Europe discovered the new world. Uh, and then, but he didn't discover much of it. And all of these other explorers that followed filled in the details. And by far, Jung was the most important of the new explorers of the unconscious. He was willing to go much further and identify much more of what was there uh, than, than really anyone else did. Uh, and the unconscious, of course, has been explored uh, in different ways for thousands or even tens of thousands of years before you and Freud, uh, various seers and shamans and so on, uh, have their ventures into the unconscious. But uh, I think the significance of Freud and Jung particularly was to uh, explore it in a way that attempted and to an important degree succeeded in being scientific and getting recognition for the existence and importance of the unconscious as the field of scientific study. And uh, opening the way Jung did, much more than Freud, uh, for a scientific study of parapsychological phenomena and strange phenomenon that we had just uh, put outside the, con the, the, the pale of civilization. Uh, as it's like out in the forests. We, we, we don't deal with it and we don't think about it. It's just out there. And uh, they uh, changed that. And that, that, that is a change that I won't say it's only beginning, but it's in its earlier stages of bringing this area of, of the world into scientific scrutiny, just like uh, 
we knew about the heavens, the stars, and so on. We didn't know what they, they were, but we knew there was this realm, realm out there. And modern physics and astronomy has just shown that it's a, a vastly complicated uh, universe of uh, out there that we hadn't really uh, dreamed of in, in any specificity and that, that we increasingly have the tools for exploring it in a scientific way. Uh, and uh, we, we're doing a somewhat analogous thing, I, I think, with, with uh, uh, Jung particularly and Freud opened that door. Uh, is is this something that you look at that way too, Jeffrey? I do, uh, as a matter of fact. I think you've put it very well. But let's talk about your own field. You're a scholar of Renaissance literature, and I think you're one of the first people to introduce Jungian thought to critical analysis of Shakespeare and, and Milton. How, how has the field of literary criticism, for example, been impacted by Jungian thought? Uh, well, the, the impact uh, was significant, but in a way it has been aborted, one would think, temporarily. Like, for, for example, when I was in graduate school back in the late 60s and the 70s, when you and I were roommates at college, uh, one of the really great critics was Northrop Fry, And Joseph Campbell was read and all of that. And uh, Northrop Fry was a very Jungian uh, critic, so they're very focused on archetypes and mythology and, and so on. And that was a kind of a blossoming, blossoming area there. And then things changed in, as we reached in, into the 70s and 80s, we had the uh, deconstruction movement, which was out of Marx, not out of Jung or, or Freud. And uh, you also had a narrowing of uh, the field, that the, uh, the number of people who were being studying literature, English literature in particular, but and also philosophy, the humanities in general, the number of majors really constricted a great deal from the late 70s on in, in, into the present. So it's just a small fraction of what it was in 1970. And as a result of that, not as much uh, um, material is being produced. The deconstructionist uh, stem from Derrida and Foucault, and they stem from Marx. Uh, they uh, uh, were good at a kind of political takeover of um, not just English department, but all of academia, and the, that kind of thinking has spread throughout the entirety of academia. But it started really in literature in the English department, and they, they really didn't have any room for Jungians, Freudians, or any other psychological approaches. So it simply uh, diminished. Now, as many of your listeners will know, Jordan Peterson is very 
popular, his uh, uh, his YouTube uh, interviews have millions of, of uh, listeners. Uh, the feminist uh, Camille Paglia, uh, the late Harold Bloom, uh, are three leading people who uh, were uh, interested in pursuing the Jungian and uh, Fry, uh, uh, Freudian approaches. Uh, and uh, so the, it's not like uh, this has just died, but uh, it, was ta- it was taken over by uh, a, a different group and it, it is not advanced in the way that uh, one might desire. Uh, I have tried to advance it. As an independent scholar, I continued my, my work because I, uh, and it was a somewhat different sort of work than had been done by Fry and uh, uh, Campbell, uh, in that I was particularly interested in Jung's ideas on religion, which they take up many volumes of his 20-volume uh, collected works uh, and uh, culminate in some ways in, in the book Aeon and Answer to Job. Uh, I have a new book out, uh, which is a revision and expansion of my book on Shakespeare of 1983, uh, and I develop further the ideas of uh, Jung within Shakespeare and apply it to a couple of additional plays and so on. And of course, you're familiar with my with my book on, on Milton and Jung. Uh, and I'm dealing with this whole issue of uh, uh, Marxism versus Jungianism. I'm uh, in the process of writing a book called Carl, spelled with a C, versus Carl, spelled with a K. And uh, I, I'm seeing them as two powerful, uh, they've almost become like archetypes, or they're, they're individuals who, I, who are identified with, with archetypes. Well, you point out that uh, Jung has probably written more on religious topics than any other major psychological theorist or psychiatric theorist. Uh, Let's go into why that's the case. The key distinction between Jung and Freud, I think, and Jung and many other psychological uh, uh, thinkers is they tend to send center on the ego and on the area of consciousness. Uh, Jung centers on what I would call the ego self access. And uh, he sees the most important relationship that all of us have is not with one of these other archetypes, which would be like the parent figures, uh, the, 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 the one's mate, uh, one's mentors, grandparents, or even the ego, the shadow, or the anima and animus and persona, all tremendously important uh, archetypes that are based upon uh, psychological and social f- 
functions that humans have. Uh, but the most important is the self, between the ego and the self. And the drama of life is a drama of uh, the relationship between those two. And the ego tries, uh, the self tries to, to guide the ego toward individuation, particularly in the latter half of life. And Jung was much more focused on the latter half of life than he was on the first half, which is, again, different from, uh, from other psychologists. Uh, and he, he was uh, focused particularly on individuation as, as the purpose, really, of human life. Well, what is the purpose of human life, people often ask. Well, Jung's answer would have been individuation. It's to realize as much of the self consciously, uh, bring it as much as into consciousness as you can. This, the goal is wholeness, but that goal uh, is always uh, receding into the, dis the distance because the psyche and the self are so vast that, that it, can, it, it's, it can't actually be achieved, but it can be sought and it can be increasingly realized. And th that's uh, the, the, the ultimate purpose of human life is to realize as much of the self uh, as you can. And we're of course limited because we're, uh, our lifespans are, are limited and there are, we're cyclical. Uh, you know, we go through youth, uh, middle age, old age, and uh, uh, we don't have uh, unlimited time to realize what is, for all practical purposes, an unlimited self. Uh, does that answer your uh, question? Well, the self is, uh, as I understand it, rather uh, uniquely defined in Jungian thought that perhaps Plato uh, referred to the self in a, in a similar way. But I don't know that the concept of self in, let's say, Freud is, is pretty closely identified with, with the ego, or it might even include the ego and the id and the superego altogether. But Freudian psychology doesn't go much beyond that. That's right. And, and the, the, the self, uh, is vast, but, but it, it's not the entire psyche. The psyche itself is vaster <laughs> than, than the self. The self is a kind of organizing principle. Uh, or regulatory, uh, he at times calls it, I believe, a homostatic function. Uh, and you, you might look at it like the solar system. Uh, the sun is the center of the solar system, and its powerful gravity go governs the movements of everything within. Uh, and that's what the self is like. But the psyche is like the whole of the solar system, which would be the whole, everything within the gravitational field of the sun, which, of course, uh, we, we know that that gravitational field it 
extends uh, billions of miles beyond the orbit of, of, of Pluto. It's, it's uh, really vast compared to the size of the sun or, or certainly the Earth. So, uh, uh, but, but you, you might make this comparison with, with the solar system. It's not a bad comparison of the ego is like the Earth and the sun is, is like the self and the whole of the thing is like the psyche. We started out by talking about religion and Jung's extraordinary focus on religion. And I'm under the impression that when Jung refers to the self, he is in some sense saying that this is the part of us that might be the closest to what you could think of, uh, and you do write about, actual God. Yes, I think uh, uh, he sees the self. Well, there's, of course, the, the, the microcosm mirrors the macrocosm. And apply this to the self. The self is the microcosm that mirrors the macrocosm of actual God. Uh, the governing forces, the homeostatic regulator of the entire universe. And I've suggested in one of my books, the book called Shakespeare and Jung, The God in Time, that... Uh, this is uh, uh, I, I would hesitate to say that this regulator is just time, because what do we mean by time? But time is a, an essential part of it. Uh, and uh, the self, uh, Jung is famous for saying that I know God exists because I have an image of God that I uh, directly experience. He said, I, I don't believe in God. Believe is something uh, that you reach a conclusion from examining things. I know it directly. And he knows it directly because he knows the self is there. And the self is, it's not only our image of God, it's our channel to God. That's a very profound idea. How do theologians in general view Jungian thought? A lot of them are interested in it, but none of them embrace it. Fully, Paul Tillich was moving in that direction, I think, in the latter part of, of his life. Jung, of course, had sharp criticisms of orthodoxy. He didn't like the idea that God was three-part. He thought God had to be four-part, and that the masculine needed the feminine needed to be included and the idea in orthodoxy that god is completely masculine and has no feminine figure he would reject because he said that then god does not become an image of wholeness uh which in jung's view god god must be that uh he also said that uh, the orthodox uh, reject the idea of 
uh, the material, evil, perhaps substantiation. And they try to make God perfectly good and place God outside the universe. And that's, you know, that's generally what, what theologians like is, and I, the God is, is transcendent. He transcends the universe, and in that way, he can't be fully responsible for evil and all that's wrong with the, the, the universe but by separating him from the universe. Jung's not clear on that, but uh, I think that if you look at the overall implications of his ideas, it would be that God is not transcendent at least in any meaningful way uh, uh, for, for us. Perhaps, perhaps ultimately, uh, I was going to say he, but I won't. Uh, God uh, is both transcendent and, and imminent, but not, not uh, those who stress the transcendence of God, for you, do it for purposes that he rejects, making God the summa bonum, and then transferring all responsibility for everything that is wrong to humanity. But now, Jung looks at two, God in two ways. Uh, first of all, in a few places he talks of actual God, and I have a fairly long section in the cartography book, and I discuss God elsewhere, actual God elsewhere, uh, I think this is a very important concept that he didn't develop very much. But he talks about actual God, and he sees this as quite separate from our human conceptions of God. Uh, but he also talks a great deal about the Judeo-Christian God, the God that starts out with, the, with Abraham and moves on through through Job and uh, through the development of the Christian religion, even to some degree on into the offshoot that, that is Islam. And answer to Job, which he sometimes regarded as his most important book. He, he analyzes that God, and he sees him as initially in the Old Testament, very unconscious, very immoral. And the reason for Christ's incarnation was so that God could understand uh, man and could also understand uh, the evils or the suffering, perhaps, that he's inflicted upon man. And so there is kind of an implication here that you didn't fully develop, but which I find interesting that makes this uh, God, which I called it a collective autonomous complex, something it's an, we probably most people know what an autonomous complex is. It's a uh, developed separately within kind of a separate personality that has acquires a lot of psychic energy and it tends to be centered on certain archetypes. 
uh, the shadow can become a collective uh, or an autonomous complex at, at odds with the with the ego and the anima. And the animus always need to be integrated, so they're to a degree autonomous complexes. But it's possible for the energies of all the people within a culture or civilization to gather uh, together into, I believe, a collective autonomous complex. We, we see this probably most clearly in nationalism, when we get fanatical nationalism, such as in Hitler's Germany, or uh, to a degree today in China, in China or uh, the kind of Islamic fanaticism in the Middle East, that this is a collective autonomous complex going. And, uh, but uh, I think implicit in Jung is the idea that this complex was, has been going since the early period of the Old Testament and developing forward. And, uh, and what I, I find interesting is that this makes Christ, uh, it sort of turns Paul on his head, St. Paul. And uh, instead of coming uh, to pay a penalty uh, for uh, the sin, the sins of man against God, God comes and experiences human life in Christ to pay a penalty and to better understand his own sins against mankind, which makes the God far more, more noble than, in my view, than he is in St. Paul, because St. Paul and in Milton, you have this legalistic God that sets up this prohibition, don't touch the, the tree of fruit of the tree of good and evil, and don't listen to uh, the serpent. And then Adam and Eve did, and then all of us from then on are cursed by, by this and have to make it up to God for this little infraction. And it, is, it sets obedience as, as the core requirement of religion. And I think for you, understanding and growth of consciousness is what religion should be seeking, and it is what uh, ultimately what this God is seeking in himself and what uh, the God wants us to do. And so this is a very different view of Christianity and the whole Judeo-Christian monotheism. It's very little assimilated at this point of time, but that could change in the future, and that would be a hopeful thing if it did, because it would more bring all of these different uh, uh, re religious, contentious religious uh, things uh, together in, into common insights. So I rather agree that uh, Jung's work on religion I think is certainly the most important treasury of insight that the West has had since uh, the Protestant Revolution, uh, 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 Reformation, 
or probably since the life of Christ and St. Paul, actually, <laughs> uh, which makes it tremendously important. You, you know, it's almost, uh, uh, it's sort of up there with uh, Paul and uh, uh, we won't say Christ because uh, he's seen as a God figure as well as a, as a human being. Uh, uh, and, and Moses, uh, and but how long did it take for us to absorb what Christ and Paul had to teach? Uh, Christianity was a small little fragment of a sect 150 years after uh, Christ died and Paul taught. And, and uh, uh, 150 years after the death of Jung would put us into uh, the early part of the 22nd century, about uh, 100 years from now. The same way with Moses. It took a long time. Uh, Buddha was unusual in that his teaching spread like an explosion throughout India in the, in the, in the Far East. And so so did Muhammad spread that way, but it doesn't always work that way. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, Jung's opened doors and showed us paths that could prove to be very important for the future of humanity, assuming that we do uh, the human civilization civilization does survive. Well, now you've described the self in Jungian terms as the homeostatic regulator of of the psyche uh, and of the ego toward individuation. You've described Jung's vision of actual God as the homeostatic regulator of the entire universe. And I think what you're suggesting is that these civilizational gods uh, are autonomous collective uh, complexes, and they serve as the regulators of uh, civilizations. That that's true, and they grow and change, and important figures uh, uh, are represent key stages of them. Uh, some hugely important figures like Jesus and, and Paul, and in my view, Jung or uh, Martin Luther or uh, uh, St. Augustine, but, but also figures like, like, like Shakespeare and Dostoevsky and, and Nietzsche uh, that uh, pioneers in, in thought and values advance the the individuation, shall we say, of this uh, collective autonomous complex. And that, that's what's going on, really. The, the, uh, you could look at West, the history of Western civilization as the individuation of this complex. And it's a collective individuation, which is Different, of course, from a personal individuation, and uh, maybe an advantage it has is we all have to deal with death. 
we're all uh, limited in time, but this thing can keep on growing and maturing and uh, expanding its area of, of consciousness uh, across the millennium uh, for humanity. It, it, it could do that. Now, it's a rough ride. <laughs> it's always been a very rough ride. You know, we, we have things like Hitler that come along and the collapse of the Roman Empire and uh, all the wars of religion uh, during the, the, the Reformation and uh, huge problems right now. Uh, but life is like that. Uh, you emphasize that consciousness grows through suffering. And individuation, uh, uh, I think he said it, it was uh, the crucifixion of the ego on the cross of the self. And it, it, it only comes through suffering. Now, I think that other things are necessary, that there has to be the good things in, in life to contrast with, with, with the suffering for individuation uh, to proceed. You didn't say that, but I, I think that that's necessary Otherwise, you just implode in despair if there was nothing good. So there's got to be this uh, uh, coincidentia oppositorum that Jung loved to phrase Latin, the, the meeting of opposites that define things and advance a kind of dialectic through through uh, individuation is a dialectic. And of course, Hegel and Marx and many, many others recognize that the development of uh, Western civilization is a, di a dialectic. And uh, uh, this idea has um, a lot of parallels in Hegel, I would say. Hegel's not, it's kind of an out of repute philosopher now. Uh, but the whole idea of the world spirit and so forth, uh, uh, realizing itself, uh, I think not in the way that Hegel said, but the idea that uh, that, that process is going on, which he had, is an, uh, a, I think it's implicit in Jung's thought, and it's something that seems valid and useful concept to me. Let's talk about the concept of justice. I'm under the impression that the Jungians uh, don't emphasize social justice nearly to the extent that, let us say, the Marxists do. But there needs to be some kind of a balance, I would assume, that individuation is not strictly an internal psychological process, nor is it strictly a, a process of, of making society better and more just. Justice is necessary for the stability of society and for its continued individuation. Jung was very much an introvert, as we all, all know. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, he didn't focus very much on justice, society, and, and, and political things. Also, 
he was Swiss. Switzerland is the most stable and safest country in the world. He was not only Swiss, but he was married to an extraordinarily wealthy woman and never had any financial problems. Uh, and his patients tended to be upper middle class professional people whose problems were more inner than they were uh, justice problems. Which justice problems are problems that you have with other people and, and with society uh, where you're being badly treated and you can't do anything uh, about it. Uh, and he was more, much more concerned about the disharmonies within the self rather than the disharmonies between uh, the, the ego and uh, uh, society. And I wouldn't say he minimized them. I would say that he tended to ignore them too much. And uh, I, I don't know that he could have been different than than. than than what he was or that it was even a flaw considering, you know, the greatness of, a, of his overall achievement. But uh, as I've seen in, in this new book that I'm working on, he has become a kind of archetype of for this whole inner individuation quest. And Marx has become a kind of archetype for the social side of this. They also, Marx and Jung are like, uh, you can see them as like ego and shadow, with Marx being the shadow figure. And now I would emphasize, as Jung always did, that the shadow is something of value. It has things that are crucial, that must be incorporated into the ego consciousness. Uh, it can't just be dismissed or, or repressed. Uh, it has to be worked with. So in saying that Marx is a shadow figure, he's more like a shadow figure like Prometheus than he is like, say, Satan, who's wholly uh, negative. But it's, you can also see them in terms of the two hostile brothers, which is a very powerful archetype in Jung. It goes through all of literature and uh, it's rival males. And elements of Jung's thought, we have a quaternity rather than a trinity. And you have the Father and Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then you have this fourth figure, the missing fourth, which he debated about, is that feminine and the Virgin Mary? Uh, I've said, no, no, that's not the way to go because the paraclete at the top is a feminine figure. It was originally that. The feminine is there in the original cons concept of uh, the eternity. What uh, the fourth figure is actually Satan or, Luth or Lucifer, and Christ and Satan and Lucifer are uh, the hostile brothers, their ego and shadow. And in, in a way, uh, uh, you have that playing in Western civilization today, that the, uh, you have ego and shadow, the hostile brothers, 
are uh, centered on Marx and Jung. Uh, but the unions barely deal with Marx at all, which I find interesting. And of course, the Marxists barely deal with Jung at all. Uh, Marx, interestingly enough, uh, he wasn't exactly an atheist. He thought that uh, the question of the existence of God could not be proved or resolved. And so it was a waste of time. Uh, kind of an agnostic, a, a, a little different from uh, the current image. Uh, if you look at Marx himself and his life, he comes across, to me at least, as a better and more valuable figure than uh, if you simply look at some of his more notorious uh, disciples like Mao and Castro and Stalin in, in the 20th century. If you look at them, he comes across as totally evil, but, but he actually was not an, 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 an evil man. Personally, he had uh, a kind of message that is resonates tremendously in the 20th century and 21st century culture, and that is the crying need for justice. Well, that's beautifully put, Jim. Have, have we missed anything in, in terms of the uh, important boundary issues of Jungian thought? I know we haven't really gotten into philosophy. Jung, as I understand it, did not wish to uh, be thought of as a philosopher. Uh, Murray Stein's uh, Jung's Map of the Stole does de deal with that, and uh, uh, it, it's a part of contemporary thought. I think a lot of people, including myself and Murray Stein, are thinking that while he wasn't a systematic thinker, uh, when you study the vast amount of Jung's work, uh, it becomes more systematic. <laughs> than, than uh, uh, you, you, you expect. It's not, uh, that wasn't a goal of, of you. But I, I think it's um, uh, uh, moving in that direction of, of being systematic. And uh, no one can fully achieve systematic uh, uh, thought, although the great philosophers try uh, they always fail. Uh, there are always shortcomings. Uh, no, no, few people other than some disciples accept it as uh, uh, an overall explanation. And uh, sometimes, well, I think it may be counterproductive to try to do that. Uh, one way of exploring it as uh, making you more systematic is bringing in uh, philosophers who have somewhat similar uh, outlooks on things. And, and I think possibly the most important of them is actually uh, A.M. Whitehead, uh, the great mathematician uh, who wrote the Principia Mathematica with uh, Bertrand Russell. Uh, 
Also, Paul Tillich is an interesting uh, parallel and uh, uh, in mo modern times, you can bring these ideas together and they sort of tend towards, towards a, a system. Uh, I'm thinking, I think of them as Jung and Whitehead in particular as process philosophers. In my previous book on Shakespeare and you, God and Time, uh, I make this distinction between three big general areas of philosophers. There are stasis philosophers, and those are the ones that try to be really systematic. Plato is basically a stasis philosopher, uh, Hegel. Then at the other end, there are flux philosophers. Some of the existentialists like Sartre, Marx is basically in the flux, flux area. They, they have the assumption that there's no system to reality and, and it's just a flux. And so systematic philosophy is not, not possible. Uh, the uh, stasis philosophers assume that there is a system to reality and that's connected with God and it's just that they're looking to find it. And the process people are in the middle and they uh, tend to have the assumption that the system is working is a work in progress. It's working itself out. And it's working itself out over vast ends of time. And that's, uh, there are two important discoveries of science. Uh, there are actually three. First of all, Darwin discovered that life on Earth was much here, much longer than 6,000 years. And sciences went on to expand those. Not sure what the date is for life on Earth, but maybe it's a billion, 500,000, uh, 500 million years, something like that, but from the first uh, single-celled creatures to where we are now, uh, about one-tenth of the life of the universe. And, but then the universe become unimaginably vast. And... Scientists, I think, are speculating as many as a billion planets in a galaxy like uh, ours could have some forms of life. And they can further speculate that maybe a thousand of those planets have intelligent life. Well, if that's so, we've got four quadrillion galaxies roughly the size of ours in the in the universe and that would mean that we there could be five quintillion civilizations who are wondering about what created it all and what is the meaning of their life and each of them formulating probably several conceptions, dominant conceptions of God, such as we, we have. I think it's valuable to put 
our speculations, Christianity, Buddhism, and so on, in a context like that, in, in a vast ultimate context. It's, it's humbling, uh, which is valuable, and it's a, a step towards realism. The, the third thing, of course, that scientists, particularly the psychologists and Jung and Freud, is, is the vast complexity of the human psyche. It's not just an, an ego there that's uh, trying to keep the beasts of the forest at, at bay, but a whole world or, or universe that, that the psyche is. Uh, and uh, if we really try to formulate religious views that are appropriate to our lives and the challenges of our time, I think we have to consider those, those three things. You have to realize not only that we're, our mental universe of what we know is so much faster, and at the same time, if you're looking back to uh, St. Paul or uh, Buddha or Muhammad, you have to realize that they are working within the, con the conceptual tools that w were available at that time. And they're very different from, from us. It's like the difference between the Stone Age and what we have now. Well, James P. Driscoll, this has been a, a exciting exploration of Jungian thought as it reaches out into the world. It's been uh, very inspirational, and I should imagine that Jungian thought is is still growing. If we were to have this conversation a hundred years from now, uh, our perspectives on Jung would be different than they are today, broader. So I want to thank you very much for awakening us to this topic and for being with me. Well, thank you, Jeffrey, for giving me the opportunity to hopefully make Jung more uh, interesting and stimulate and challenging some of your viewers to look more deeply into, into him. And uh, when they do so, I hope they can take the time to take find a little guidance from my own works. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.